Today's episode of the Creative Sheet Podcast is brought to you by Renewed Vision, the creators of ProPresenter. For over 17 years, ProPresenter has been used by churches all over the world for lyric and scripture presentations, audio and video playback, environmental projection, and a lot more, Jared. You know, Roman, I would say that ProPresenter is the creme de la creme. It is the creme de la creme. If you're looking for something to uh, play video slides, uh, audio files, it's it's really versatile. You can probably use it for things that I don't even know you can use You can use throw those lyrics up on the screen for those for those amazing worship sets that you're doing through ProPresenter. If you're playing a game in a kid's classroom, you can use these, you can like do, make a game board, you can use props. It's can, incredible. It's it's uh, really amazing. Um, ProPresenter is used by over 95% of outreach magazines, 100 largest, fastest growing, and most influential churches. It's available on both Mac and Windows, so it's very, versa- uh, very versatile. So head over to RenewedVision.com and check it out. Now, let's get to the show. This is Mike Foster, and you are listening to the Creative Sheet Podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another great episode of the Creative Sheep Podcast, the podcast where we talk to people who are good at what they do to inspire leaders to get better. Folks, my name's Jared Hogan. Sitting across from me yes. is Roman Johnson. Hello, it's great to be here. Uh, I hope everyone's having a, a wonderful uh, day or night whenever you're listening to this, uh, but it is great to be on the Creative Sheep Podcast today. You know, maybe you're running on a treadmill right now, mowing the lawn. Driving maybe, a car. Maybe not mowing the lawn since it's kind of wintry months right now. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, you may be driving shoveling a car, snow. shoveling snow, perhaps. Uh, thanks for letting us be in your ear for this little bit. Uh, we really appreciate it. We really do. Um, if you would hit the subscribe, maybe share it on social media, leave a review over on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this. We would love to hear what you think about the show. And uh, folks, this is episode 45. If you didn't already see that in your uh, your 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 uh, smart device there that you're listening to this on, episode 45, Roman. Episode 50 is coming quickly. Coming up hot. You were to have a rap written for. You better believe it. I've already got I've got the first draft um, in my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be real good. But folks, uh, we've got some amazing stuff coming up for you. We want to get go ahead and get to our interview. But before we do, I uh, want to remind you, in 2017, we've got some new things coming. Number one. Number one. This podcast is going weekly, weekly. ladies and gentlemen. That's right. We didn't right. plan that, that we were just we going to do that. That, that was incredible. That was incredible. Uh, we're going weekly, everybody. That means every Monday, if you are subscribed, you're gonna be, you're gonna be the first to get the great content that's coming your way weekly, weekly, folks. For, with the, for this podcast, every Monday we're gonna be releasing an episode starting in January of 2017. I don't know if anybody, if everyone knows this, but we do show notes as we well do. over at CreativeSheep.org. So if you want to yes. check out, if we mention a uh, link or, or a book or something, we're going to list it in the show notes. Check it out at creativesheep.org. And they are fantastic show notes, very detailed. Uh, that way, if you're driving and you didn't get to take the notes, they're available for you. Absolutely. Um, so that is coming in 2017. Plus, folks, right now, if you go over to creativesheep.org, you can download any of our illustrations, yes. our countdowns, Come on. Our, our, uh, our, our invite videos. Anything. Any, any of our holiday collection. Any of our holiday collection. Roman... Absolutely free. For free 99. Free 99. Absolutely free. Just oh. give us your email address. Hold on. You're talking about one product I can get for free? You can get as many as you want. That sounds too, too good to be true. Too good to be true indeed. But go over to creativesheep.org. There's going to be a little place for you to enter your email address. It'll give you a, a sweet little code in which you can download uh, any of those things from our website for free. 
totally, totally free. So folks, uh, head over head over to creativesheep.org to pick that up. And now let's get to today's interview. Roman, I had the pleasure. Uh, I was actually in Boston while I was talking to this gentleman. Yeah, you were. Uh, his name is Mike Foster. He wrote a book called People of the Second Chance, and it's phenomenal. Um, it talks about how we live in a world where people need second chances. Um, I know this is a trap I've fallen into that when someone disagrees with me or maybe wrongs me, I, I tend to write them off or push them to the side. Um, but I feel like this is something God's really been stirring in me lately. And then coming across Mike's book, it's a phenomenal book, uh, would highly encourage you to get it. Plus, Mike has a crazy, crazy story. He's going to talk about it in the interview, something that happened to him when he was 19 that kind of reset the the trajectory of his life um, and really held him up for quite a while. So uh, we're going to be talking about that here in just a little bit, but I think without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Mike Foster. Man, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It is great to be with you. I, uh, I'm excited to uh, get to chat a little bit. For sure. Well, first off, love the book, and we'll, we'll get to that here in just a second. Uh, but before we do, let's, let's give everybody out there listening a little bit of backstory on who Mike Foster is. Kind of give us a nutshell version, if you will, of your journey to where you are today. Yeah, so my life has been sort of a, a an interesting journey uh, to really kind of walk into people's stories, usually when they're not going so well, and um, help them figure out sort of the imperfect, not so perfect parts of life. And I've been doing that for the past 15 years, just really helping people work through their pain, their trauma, some of their dysfunctions, their things in their life that didn't go the way they thought they would. And uh, I do this through a various, very sort of uh, context. I, I, I'm an author. I create curriculum. I uh, do training for, for leaders. And so uh, really my, my whole like, mission in life is really just to amplify hope in people's lives. Um, and I think that's probably, uh, you know, is that when I wake up every morning, that's all I want to do. That's incredible. It's it's obviously a very needed thing, and you were telling me kind of beforehand getting to walk through, with, <coughs> pardon me, walk through with some leaders in some some difficult times, which uh, I'm sure can be uh, very, very trying. And and, I, and this wasn't even a part of our script. <laughs> kind of jumping in early here off script, but um, man, I, I just have to ask: with that being the life that you lead, that you, you you kind of phrased it as that you're walking in people's lives when it's not going so good. And that really struck me because I feel like a lot of pastors out there listening, that's oftentimes when we get called on. It's either when things are really good, mm-hmm. you know, we're doing the weddings, we're, we're going to see a new baby at the hospital or something like, along those lines, or it's when things go really, really bad, when there's been a catastrophe, when mm-hmm. there's major drama that's happened in people's lives. And you're helping walk leaders through this. Um, just, just maybe a quick word of advice, maybe, that you would give the pastors out there that are listening, because for you, this has got to be trying. I mean, this may be an up arrow for you, something that that energizes you, but I, I would imagine for most people, this is a, this is can be a draining thing, and that there's got to be something you do to make sure that you don't get drained and that you don't get burned out through other people, the trying times in people's lives. What is something you could speak to to the leaders out there listening that to to stay filled up? Yeah, well, I think I think you hit on a really great point of just being in leadership naturally means that you are outputting energy, and whether that's 
energy for positive things or energy where you're having to navigate some really painful things with people. The thing that leaders often forget is that, that we, God created us to be like, have limited capacities. And we forget that we forget, we think we could just keep going and going and going sort of like energizer bunny. And we forget that really the things that we're navigating and even more, more so than some other job descriptions, you know, whether you're a pastor or leader, like when you're, when you're having to talk to uh, a young couple who's just um, had a miscarriage or walking with a family as they, they deal with the, the, the diagnosis of cancer, like that is that, I don't care who you are. Um, that's, that is a withdrawal from your spirit, from your heart. And so I, I think leaders are naive if we think that we can just sort of keep showing up, keep doing the same work and not have a replenishment, um, self-care strategy. One of the things that I do, and I, I just have recently in the past year and a half have added this to my life is I see a counselor every single month for two hours. Okay. Wow. And the reason I do that isn't, isn't necessarily because there's something coming unhinged in my life and I need a bunch of counseling, but I found that I spend so much of my life listening to others that I'm not actually talking about my own problems in any context because I'm quote unquote, the leader or the go-to guy or the, you know, the second chance guy, like go talk to Mike with your problems, but Mike's never talking about his problems. And so I just pay somebody <laughs> to listen to my problems. Because I'm a human being, just like as the people who are listening to this show in whatever leadership capacity they are, they have to have a conduit to process, to get things out, to talk about their fears, talk about their anxieties, stresses, or things that are just heavy on their heart. That's really good. Just out of curiosity, just like like you were saying, we're all human beings. So human to human here, like at first, I know for me, this is something I've considered. I've not actually pulled the trigger on it yet, but to actually go see a, a counselor. And I think it's because for me anyways, for a long time, it kind of had a negative connotation to it. Like I'm going to see a counselor. There's something wrong with me, you know? And mm-hmm. so, um, so like for you at first, like when you first made this decision or as you were thinking about going to see this, was there any like trepidation or hesitation for you before you actually pulled the trigger? Um, well, two, two quick thoughts. Number one is there is something wrong with you. There's something wrong with me. Mm. All of us have brokenness in our lives. And so that would be the first sort of lie that we would tell ourselves is that, well, I don't need to see a counselor because I don't have really anything wrong with me. I guarantee you, <laughs> you have things, unresolved issues, certain pain, certain trauma in your life, certain uh, relationships that are not sitting right in your life and do need to talk about. So that that's number one. Mm. And number two, I don't look at counseling as sort of a, a place of fear, but a place, but it's a place of strategy. I look at, mm. I look at the counseling as this is actually sharpening the ax for me to go out and do the work that I have been called to do. Um, it isn't a, it isn't about weakness. It isn't about looking bad. It's about like, I do this because this is going to make me a more successful, uh, more effective uh, in the work that I'm doing. And so we're, the only person that we're robbing of it, because of sort of maybe these, these lies that we believe about counseling or self-care or actually doing some things that actually, you know, replenish you is, is we we're hurting ourselves 
and we're hurting actually what I think God's trying to birth out of us. And so, number one, I say, yes, we all have problems. Small problems, big problems, medium-sized problems, we all have problems that would benefit from talking to a counselor or somebody, uh, a safe person to talk to. And number two, uh, counseling and self-care is absolutely the power strategic move. That's really, really, really good. Um, would you say too that with all of this, and maybe you you kind of said it already, but in going to see a counselor, or or just in in uh, like you said, when we're listening to other people's problems, um, that that we think we've got it all under control. Do you think it's that it's kind of the natural tendency that we don't even necessarily see things going awry in our own lives while we're helping other people with theirs? Without question, I think. Um... We are so good at self, like just human beings in general and, and you know, research, science, uh, God, all say the same thing. We are fantastic at our own self-deception. And, and we, you know, it's like every lie that I've told myself made perfect sense to me. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, of course, that's the way the world works. Or of course, that's what's going to happen. Or like, but that doesn't make it true. And so we have to be, we have to, um, really become self-aware and really, uh, lean into maybe some of the, the misconceptions that we have about ourselves, maybe the misconception that, Hey, I can keep burning at this, this pace and not have any downside to this. I can keep, you know, working 60 hours a week and, um, you know, have do another 20 year run of this. Mm. Like there, that's just self deception or this uh, idea of that. I can output energy and life and encouragement and keep giving and giving and giving and not have to take something back in. That's just naive, right? That's just not the way <laughs> nothing in the universe works that way. For sure. You you have to have something in order to give something. And it's sort of the symbiotic relationship. It's like, I always talk about God's love in terms of like, God's love is pouring into us and we're pouring it out. But we also, I mean, we have to make sure that God's love is coming in and God's love comes in through taking care of ourselves, through just uh, relationships that are that are encouraging to us and, and fill us up doing practices, spiritual practices and, and different things like counseling that actually help us replenish. But like, if we don't have, if, if we're empty inside, we're not going to have anything to give. Mm, that's really good. And you know, you, one of the things that's the uh, great quote from your book is that beating yourself up is not a fruit of the spirit. And I think we can oftentimes, especially as pastors, people in ministry, we think of that just through self-thought and, and that's definitely a part of it. Um, but I would say that this would play into that as well. And that if you're constantly, like you said, pouring out, but not pouring back in, it can take a major toll on you, right? Oh, absolutely. In fact, typically what happens in my, my work and when I'm working with leaders is that they have sort of denied basic laws of the universe about, you know, you have to take care of yourself. You have to replenish, you have to do self-care if you're going to have the ability to actually give, um, you know, encouragement and compassion and love to others. And they fought against that so long and they believe they're, they believe their own hype. They believe they, they, they told themselves that, no, I'm different from the millions of other leaders who are doing self-care. Like, no, I can keep burning 
the, the candle at both ends. I can keep compromising my marriage. I can keep compromising my family and we'll get through this. And then it, they hit the wall and it all comes crashing down, like literally in a day or two and it's over and it's done and they're cooked. And, and now they're taking like months, if not years to sort of rebuild something versus just uh, a, a strategy for maintenance and self-care that would have kept them in the game for a very long time. Wow. That's really good stuff. So <laughs> we kind of riffed there for, for a good while. <laughs> not even that, none of that was actually planned. <laughs> that was some amazing stuff right there. But uh, you, you wrote a book that is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I love the book. I actually, we were talking about this just a little bit beforehand. I, I love the cover of your book. I, I, it was, I was drawn to this book um, just based on the cover. And it's called People of the Second Chance, and it's a phenomenal book. And before we really jump into um, uh, some, some of the, the meat of the content, you had a pretty life-altering event happen very early on in your life um, that, that, that really changed you in a pretty drastic way. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so really my my whole life and work and ministry is around this concept of second chances. And one of the reasons why I, I'm so passionate about it is because I've needed them so often in my own life and in my own story. And one of the things that started like early on in my life, when I was 19 years old, I was involved in a very horrific uh, boating accident where I was driving a water ski boat and began to turn the boat into what I thought was clear water. And it wasn't clear water. There was another skier from another boat who had fallen in the water and was waiting to be picked up. And he was, we're now on this collision course. And because of the speed that I was going, I, I wasn't able to turn in time and I hit him. And I didn't just sort of brush him with the boat or bump him with the boat. I literally ran him over and the propeller of my boat ran up his arm and broke off in his head. It was, it was just, you know, what I, it's what I write about in the book. I call these toothpaste moments where, you know, you, you wish you could get, you wish you could undo what you had just done. You wish you could reverse the tape. You wish you could, uh, you know, stop that from happening. But here we are, like the toothpaste has literally come squirting out of the tube. And you're like, oh my gosh, what have I just done? And I had that moment at 19 years old and that the, um, the, the skier that I hit, he would be medevaced out to the hospital. Um, he'd be permanently disfigured. Uh, his arm, uh, would be permanently disfigured because of the, the damage that had done with the boat. He'd suffer a little bit of brain damage where he'd have to, um, do physical therapy to, to get some of his faculties back. And it was just, I remember that season of just carrying the weight of that and the shame of that and the guilt of that and just bargaining with God saying, God, you know, if we could just undo that accident. And I think for me, all of us have those moments where we just feel completely powerless or we, we have regrets or we wish we could change something. And yet life life doesn't play that way. Like it, we can't reverse things. We can't undo history, but what we can do is begin to step into this beautiful place called radical grace and second chances and, and really begin to process our pain and, and the feelings that we feel when we've done 
something wrong. And even though it was an accident, um, that didn't protect my heart. I still beat myself up over it. I still shamed myself over it. I still, you know, punished myself over what I had done. And I think all of us probably have some things or some events or some stuff that has happened in our own story where we do that. Man, no, no doubt. That's a man. I can only imagine, especially at 19 years old. Um, and just, just out of curiosity at the time of this recording, how old are you now? So I'm 45. Okay. Do you ever, and what's interesting oh, about that, that story. And I write about this in the book is it took, it took me another 19 years of my life to actually release myself from that accident. Wow. Um, I beat myself up for 19 years and I believed in grace. I loved God. I knew that I was forgiven, but I had, I had just made a new contract and some new rules and some new beliefs in my life that, um, I had messed up so bad on the river that, 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 that day that I was just gonna, I was just gonna punish myself for 19 years. And, um, that's what I'm trying to stop people from doing. I'm trying them to trying to stop them from, you know, the, uh, listening to the voices of condemnation that are playing in their head right now. I'm trying to get them to step into a new way of seeing their life and their future and their past, and and really surround that in the message of um, second chance and new beginnings and fresh starts. And thank God for new beginnings and second chances and. Why, with the the gentleman that that you did have the accident with in the river that day, were you ever able to speak to him after the event? Yeah, so I get that question a lot. You know, because that that's sort of um, that's how we want the story to go, and, and it's kind of the way that I would want the story to go. But it actually didn't go that way at all. And I, I again, I write about this in the book is that we sort of have sometimes a Hollywood picture, like even when something bad has happened, mm. how it's supposed to resolve or how, and sort of like my story is supposed to resolve with me and this water skier embracing and him saying I'm forgiven and me crying. And, you know, this having this moment that never, ever came. I never saw him again. You know, attorneys wow. got involved, court cases got involved. I never saw the man except that day in the water. And that's, you know, I, it's what I call the theology of what is. And, and sometimes we have things in our life and things in our story where they're not going to, they, they're not going to fit nicely in the box. There isn't like a happy ending per se. There's just a sense of, um, you know, God, like the world talks about closure a lot. Like mm-hmm. when we go through painful experiences, like we're just have closure and to me, a closure moment for it would have been for me to, uh, you know, meet the guy, say, I'm sorry, you know, him, forgive me, have this moment that never happened. So I never had closure. What I, what I, but, but this is what I believe and this is sort of my philosophy for life is that when we go through these traumatic things is that the, the goal is not closure. The goal is opening, openings to new life and new ways to see um, our own story and to see God. And it's sort of like, I look at that accident and go, I never had closure in terms of with, with that, that guy that I hit, but I had openings to new levels of compassion, empathy. Um, I had new insights on 
what it means to feel powerless and and shame ridden. I had like I literally got earned this PhD in pain that now I'm able to use in helping others. And that's to me the point is like it's not so much about getting closure, it's about what is God trying to open up in our lives when we experience these what I call death moments. Like literally something died that day. Now not physically died, but like man, the life that I knew at that moment changed. Mm. So everything up to that point was 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 different from that from that point on. And s- some of us allow these moments to break us, to we live under the weight of of, of our mistakes. We 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 just play the mixtapes of condemnation and, and judgment instead of saying, okay, how is this painful experience? How is this tra- trauma that I have gone through going to expand my heart for love, for compassion? How can God take this broken thing and make it beautiful? Man, that's amazing. And through this this accident, you ended up kind of crafting a new way of living for yourself for 19 years, like you were saying, that it took you 19 years to get over this. But during those, from the time the accident happened until you were 38, what did that life look like for you? Yeah, so for me... Um... One of the, I, I call them condemnments or these, these new rules that we write when we go through these moments. And so I'll give you an example. Um, you know, maybe if you have gone through a, a messy divorce, uh, maybe you have a new rule that you have made for your life is that I'll never find love again or that I shouldn't, I'll never be able to be married again. Or maybe, maybe you've been hurt or betrayed by a friend. And so maybe your new rule is I'll never trust anybody again. I'll never truly like put myself in that situation because I won't trust. And so we, it's not that we verbalize these rules or we don't like write necessarily write them down anywhere, but we make these, we make these agreements with our, our, with God and with ourselves to say, this is how my new life's going to look like. It's all, it's all being birthed out of pain and fear and confusion instead of, you know, love and, and clarity and, and, and wisdom. And so for me, like with the accident, one of the rules that I made for myself was because of what I had done, I would no longer, uh, enjoy the water again, be, being around the water, being on the water. Um, I literally just said, it's now off limits to me. And, um, that was in my mind, a way that I could, uh, honor the victim and, and really make sure that, that, um, you know, I really understood the weight of what I had done and, and all of it. What, what's so, what's so crazy is that these rules make perfect sense to us. I told myself that for 19 years and it made perfect sense for 19 years until I realized like my life is not flourishing. My life doesn't have to be, be weighed down by this rule that I made in a moment of pain, confusion, and hurt. Mm. And so we really have to challenge those things that we believe about who we are and our story and our future and our, you know, things that, that, um, you know, what beliefs are we living and operating from right now that just are not true. Wow. Just that, that's incredible. That's incredible. So, so it takes you 19 years to kind of, to you, you've written these new rules for your life. And then now, 19 years later, you finally start figuring out a way to get out of this. What did that look like? Yes. 
Well, it, it was a, it was a process. Um, I, 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 a couple things. So there was sort of a, um, a long questioning of the rule. And I think we do that. Like we can question like, Hey, this, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I, you know, believing this about my story or why am I not trusting people anymore? Because I've been hurt, you know, a couple of years ago, like there's sort of this little bit of a debate happening in our head that, that goes on and that's good and that's healthy and we need to, to do that. I think the other thing that happened is like, there's just a, I think there's just a catalytic moment where you say, I'm done. I'm done living this way. And for me, the way that I said I was done having the water be off limits and the the way that I was going to like just totally blow up that rule was I signed up for a sailing class and, and I learned over a weekend with the encouragement of some friends and my wife that said, why don't you learn how to sail? And I, I love sailing. I love the water. I have always loved the water. Water's been a huge part of my life. But since the accident, it had been off limits. And so I literally paid 200 bucks to take a sailing class on a Saturday and Sunday. And I broke the rule that I had followed for 19 years. And you know what's so interesting about that, Jared, was just, just for me, like, the, the, here's, the, here's what the thought that came through my head as I finished that class. And I loved it. It was so enjoyable. I just had this new passion now for sailing. And um, it, it was basically, why did I operate so many years believing that the water was off limits to me? Why? And that's, that's, the, sad, that's the tragedy of you know, the rule. Is like so many years of this joy, um, this these opportunities, this beautiful thing called sailing, this beautiful thing that God has wired in me to love the water. It all been off limits for 19 years. And I'm like, why? Why did I believe that for so long? You know, I love one of the things you say in your book. You said, we let a moment of pain cut us off from a lifetime of grace. How have you learned to live in the grace of God, which, I mean, it's, it's true. It's the, it's amazing grace. It's the gift that we can't do anything for, but how have you learned to live in that? Yeah, for, for me, it is a, um, it's a daily choice. Um, I think sometimes we, we, as Christians or as pastors, we say, well, I made a decision for grace. I'm following God. God loves me. I made that decision 10, 15, 20 years ago or whenever, um, which is great. I think that's a really important thing, like sort of crossing the line saying, this is how I want to do life. But, but really the decision for grace and the decision to experience God's love is actually a decision I make every single day. Sometimes it's in every single moment. Uh, when I'm having a tough day, when I'm having things aren't going right, I actually have to have to force myself to choose grace, to choose the path of love, to choose the path of truth. Um, and it's not easy. That's that's the thing. Like there's some days where you know I'm the second chance guy. I'm writing a book called People of the Second Chance. I'm I'm reading an organization, you know, all about grace. And yet I still every single day have to remind myself that I'm loved, that I'm valued that God is for me, that I'm forgiven, that I'm whole, that I'm free. And it's almost like this daily spiritual practice of just, we have to remind ourselves of the most basic truths because the, the, the opposite of that 
is we live in a society and where there's there's a, a shame machine and a judgment machine that is constantly spewing out a message of condemnation, a message of saying that you're not doing enough, you're not loved, you don't matter, you uh, you screwed that up, shame on you. Like it's it, that's that's what we swim in every single day. And I don't care whether you're working in the church or in a in a business or or a soccer mom. Like all of us are swimming in that that uh tank right now and so we have to be strategic about fully embracing god's love every single day and defining ourselves as the beloved not as you know the guy who ran over somebody uh in a boating accident i'm not the guy who like maybe yells at my kids today like that those are parts of our story but that's not who we are Mm. We are God's beloved. We are defined by his grace. We're defined by his love. And that's what we have to remind ourselves of each day. Man, that's good. And you, you know, one thing that I think that's interesting is that for me personally, and, and, I, and I think for a lot of the type A folks out there that are listening, the leaders that are listening to this podcast, we've been taught, we've been trained that we're to be self-sufficient. That you know, it's the whole, you fake it till you make it. You know, you put on a smile, whether you believe it or not, you, you hide weakness, you don't show weakness um, and, or, or failures for that matter. What, what do you see in this idea of uh, God's amazing grace? Like, what's the problem with this whole fake it till you make it, just grin, grin, grin and smile and, and bear it and hide your weakness, <laughs> hide your failures? What's the problem there? Well, yeah, there, there's lots of problems. I think first, the first thing of, you know, that whole idea of self-sufficiency, um, you know, that, that's just, again, a, a lie that has been taught to us by culture. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, um, the other thing that we, we believe as leaders is that we're supposed to be quote unquote successful. And what I always like to talk to leaders about is, and, and some don't like hearing this, and probably there's there's probably a debate to be had, but God actually is not that interested in how successful you are. He really isn't. I know we are, and the people around us, maybe our board, or, you know, like our staff are really interested in how successful we are, but God's really not that that into it. The only thing that God is into is a loving relationship with you as a leader, that you love him he is able to love you, that there is this mutual dependency upon each other. And, and, and that's, that's the life, that's the leadership life. That's, that's the Christian life. That's, that's spirituality. But we get so caught up on not only self-sufficiency, but also this, this narrative of success. And then all of a sudden, when the story doesn't go the way that it's supposed to go, you know, thriving, killing it, scaling, growing, you know, amazing sermon, whatever, like all the success metrics that we might have in our heads when it doesn't go that way. What do we do then is we cover it up and we fake it and we pretend. And then, but we know deep inside that somehow we are not enough. And that's the thing that God is trying to break in all of us as leaders saying, you are, you are, you are enough from day one. You will be enough at, at on your very last day, the very last breath that you take. Mm. I can't love you anymore. Like your success 
fantastic, man. Like, and I, I know we over spiritualize this stuff. And you're like, well, I got to grow the kingdom and I got to be, you know, saving souls and all that stuff. Like, well, that's again, all about our own self, uh, self sustainability, our own, our own sort of, um, works, our own skills that has nothing to do with God. God, God's going to move in, in the way that he's going to move. He's going to save people. He's going to, he's going to like blow our minds as leaders. If we just like get out of the freaking way, right? <laughs> and we just say, all right, you know, have, it's not that we don't show up by the way, either. It's not to say like, well, I'm just going to be lazy and aren't going to do anything. And like, Oh, it's just all up to God. No, we show up, we arrive full hearted, fully engaged, loving people the best way that we can operating our guests the best way that we can. But we are not responsible for the results. God owns the results. He owns those metrics. And honestly, what, what's so sad in leadership is that so often we get so laser focused on results and numbers and metrics. And we, we, we forget to actually love God and to let God love us. Man, that's so good. Jordan Wiseman, who works at Life Church, he he's the marketing coordinator for U Version, uh, the Bible app, and he wrote an article on his blog talking about how he's been in ministry forever, much like you, much like me. And he wrote this this brief blog that just talked about how he's worked for God for a long time, but does he really mm-hmm. love God and does he know God? Yes. And that it's it, it can be so easy that when you work in ministry that you begin to equate your your work in ministry to your relationship with God, and that's a very dangerous place to 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 start teetering on, um, because it's not. And I love how you frame that in. That's that's brilliant. Um, I, I love a story you tell in the book about Donnie showing up to this party, and and uh, you were actually warned about Donnie being at this party. <laughs> Without really much context to that, um, and then and then when Donnie comes in, he he's just he's just a, a just a, a a big personality, and just loves everybody and giving people huge hugs. And I really identified with this story because I'm like you, like get out of my space. Like I, I'm not a touchy feely person. Like <laughs> I don't need your hugs, um, and I probably need them more than I realize. But like I'm not like my family is just that way. Like we're not a touchy feely kind of people, you know. And so I, I just thought this was was so awesome in the way that you framed this in. I'd like you to expound on it some more, but. Uh, getting, uh, let me see, I jotted down the note here, but the, the weird, the weirdness to the wonderful, uh, you, you described mm-hmm. it, what started as it was like super weird and awkward and strange and like really pushed you outside your comfort zone. But then realizing later, like how wonderful that really is and should be. Why don't you expound on that yes. a little bit? Well, yeah, I was, uh, I was at this, Christmas party uh, in Kentucky with a friend of mine, and I was kind of the I was kind of the newcomer, and uh, there's probably 30, 40 people at this party, and my friend John said, "Hey, see a guy named Donnie who's going to be here tonight, and uh, you know I just got to I got to warn you, he's he's uh, he's just a love bug, right? He's just a love cat." And uh, I'm like, oh, "Okay," you know, I'm kind of thinking, "All right, he's probably really friendly, really nice guy, you know, going to." give me a hug or whatever. It's fine. I'm fine. But, but Donnie, Donnie is a guy who, uh, he's about 50 years old, big scruffy beard. He's probably about five feet tall. He, <laughs> he meets me for the very first time and he gives me this huge hug and he doesn't let me go. He just keeps holding on to me. 
he starts kissing my neck and just saying, I love you. I love you. You're just so awesome. I'm so glad. I'm like, to the point of like, I'm feeling very awkward. I'm, this is, this is too long of a hug. I'm not usually like having guys with scrubby beers kissing me on the neck. And, (laughs) but, but Donnie, and, and I write about this in the book in terms of Donnie's story and, 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 um, why he approaches the world that way and relationships that way. And there's actually a lot of pain in, in Donnie's story, but the thing that was so important to me, and I think, I think the point that I make in that chapter and, and with Donnie's story is that so often we are resistant to God's love and we're resistant to actually other people loving us because we feel awkward or weird we just we block it and because we don't want it to get too you know funky and what I, what I learned in that moment with Donnie and just spending you know kind of spending the rest of the evening in terms of that party and just seeing how he operates and how he loves on people and the joy that just exudes out of him uh what I learned is that um you know I need to stop again kind of standing in my own way and, and really blocking, you know, trying to trying to have everything in control or everything proper, or everything looking good. And just say like, you know what, it's going to get weird. It's going to get a little wacky and that's okay. Like that's actually the mystery of God. That's, that's how, you know, the upside down nature of the kingdom, you know, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And, and, you know, like that's, that's God. And so I think, you know, my challenge to all of us, especially as leaders is like, man, don't get so enamored with control and having all your I's dotted and your T's crossed and, and having everything figured out. Cause that actually, if you're in that place, you've really sort of pushed God out. Mm. And, um, so moving into places where we are uncomfortable or places where we say like, I don't know, this, this is confusing to me. I don't have an answer. And that's like, wouldn't that be a refreshing thing for a leader to say, you know what? I don't know. I don't have the answer. I'm like, I'm out of my, my depth right now. And we need to have those moments because that creates dependency on God. That just allows us to experience things that, that I think are much more of the kingdom versus much more of my own creation. You said in the book, it's about saying yes to God's wildness or saying yes to our own self or our own control, or, or for that matter, you could throw in there our, our own comfortable, comfortability, if I can speak today. Um, that <laughs> I think so often, I think you even said this in the book, that God kind of likes to mess with us a little bit, um, just in terms of, of, like you said, that there's things that we don't really know or may not fully understand. Um but that that happen and that, that that come into play, just like the story with Donnie, this guy that <laughs> I love that, that he just started kissing you on the neck with his full beard. Like I I I, fe- I literally can feel what you were feeling when this must have happened. And <laughs> but being like just realizing though, like this guy's story and and like where he's coming from and why he loves so extravagantly or eccentrically or however you would describe it, but realizing that God is much the same way. Um, and mm-hmm. I, and then one thing you said in there too is, um, and, and I would kind of tie it to this Donnie story, but you talk about being comfortable in your mess and, and, yes. but not only that, but being comfortable with other people's mess too, because as, because the book, I'm sure, is not just about us giving ourselves a second chance, but also seeing other people through the same lens. 
and giving other people mm-hmm. that second chance. And, and, and with that, like when you start talking with people, I mean, just this, I know it's a funny anecdote with this Donnie story, but like, that was a little bit messy. Like you, that my tendency would almost be to like push him away, but, but realizing with other people, it's going to get messy, but also with yourself, like you said, at the very beginning of this conversation, we fool ourselves into thinking that we don't have a mess or that we've got everything mm-hmm. under control. Why is it important to be okay in the mess? Yeah, well, I, I think it's, it's, um, there's sort of two kind of frameworks that we can see our lives. And I think there's a life, there's a framework of fear and control. And that framework is gonna, not going to be okay with mess. That, that, that system is about performance, success, everything in its right place, tidy, you know, everybody, everybody's doing the right things. I'm doing the right things. I look good on the outside. Like there's that, that fear and control framework. The other framework that I think, and it's really what I write about in the book and what I invite people into is what I call the love framework. And the love framework is really, I think the place where Jesus is at. And then we can also call it the hope framework where it's messy. Life is messy. Life is complicated. People are complex. I'm complex. Um, I'm flawed. I am broken. And so I can, I can choose to sort of try to control that or live from insecurity about that or um, fear. Or I could say, you know, that those truths of my life and the truths of the people that I work with and the people that I come in contact with and the truths of our world, like we operate from the love framework and that's, that's grace. That's Jesus. That's, mm. that's, but it's messy. Yep. It's not perfect. It's flawed. It is, there's unresolved things that are going to, to, to be a part of our story. Like, again, I never had that moment with that guy that would close that. Mm that would make that story not messy. It is messy, but that doesn't mean it can't be beautiful. It can't mean that it can't be redemptive. It can't mean that it can't be infused with meaning and purpose. And I don't honestly, Jared, like I look at my life, I look at the things that have gone wrong or the things that are messy. I go, you know, I may never truly fully understand why this happened or why this is the case or why I've struggled in this particular area for so long. I may never know that, but, but that's not the, me having an answer to that is not the point of life. The point of life is to know that God loves me in spite of my mess, that God can use my mess, that my life matters, even though it feels like a mess. That's, that's what I'm getting at here. Man, that's incredible. And it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. And, and as simple as it is, can also be one of the most difficult things for us as, as humans to accept. Um, yes. As we're, as we're kind of coming to a close here, uh, one of the things you say is what we should imagine what our faith might look like if we partied as much as we preached, which is really interesting, yes. which is really, really interesting. So tell us what you mean by that. Well, there's, there's lots of, um, kind of layers to that, but, but I, but I do think, um, it's happens a lot in leadership, especially, especially Christian leadership is that we've, we've lost the celebration. We've lost the joy of our first love. We've lost sort of that, that 
Christmas morning experience of waking up each day going, man, I get to be a part of what God's doing in the world today. And, um, and through it for, for lots of various reasons, maybe we've been hurt, maybe we've been betrayed, maybe it's hard right now. Maybe the finances aren't great, you know, whatever. There's lots of reasons and things that can steal our joy, but you know, there is a sense of that at the core of who we are as Christ followers, as, as leaders, as people who know God's love, there should be this sort of childlike joy, celebration, hopefulness, um, anticipation for what might happen. Like we should just be loaded up with that kind of stuff. And sometimes we just get, we think, well, no, it's got to do the duties of preaching and performing and, you know, leading and, you know, staff meetings and whatever it might be. Okay. If we forget that life really is about being experienced with each other in moments of great joy, great sorrow, um, celebration, and so, like, to me, uh, you know, I write about the story of the prodigal son. And the thing that I, that I love, the story, the stories, like, we've heard that story probably a thousand times. Mm-hmm. We always talk about the older brother or the prodigal. Uh, we, we talk about the father. But we forget that in the center of that, like, to me, the crux of the relationship that God wants to have with us, in the center of all of that, of that story, that parable, is a party. A, a, not just a small little get together or, you know, it's not a tea party. It is a raging, amazing celebration. And, and I think sometimes we lose that for a bunch of, again, very, lots of different reasons. We lose the fact that, you know, my life is, it, there should be joy. There should be flourishing. There should be this mm. celebration of what God has done in my life and the celebrating of others of what he has done in their life too. And so like when I show up, you know, at people in people's lives, when I'm you know, doing my work every day at people's second chance and, you know, I, I want to invite people into a party. I don't want to invite them into duty. I don't want to invite them into, you know, just tasks. Yeah. I want to invite them to say, we have something to celebrate. We are forgiven. We're free. We are loved by God. So let's, you know, blow up some balloons and have some guacamole and have a good time. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Man, Mike, seriously, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for coming on the show today. Before we go, though, we gotta we gotta talk about this. You you not only wrote the book, but you also lead the organization. It's a nonprofit, People of the Second Chance. Tell us what this is about, some resources that you offer, uh, not only for churches, but also for individuals. Yeah, so we're we're just a nonprofit uh, organization uh, that makes stuff for not so perfect people, and so we have small group curriculum. We have two curriculums that churches all over the country use. One is called Freeway, a not so um, perfect guide to freedom, and then I have another one called Wonder Life, uh, which has to do with purpose and identity. Um, and those are small group uh, materials that I, I think, I think I stopped counting, but I think we're over like 200,000 people have gone through this curriculum now over the past wow. three or four years. And, um, it's just been, been a great tool for churches and church leaders. And, um, and you can get more information about that at secondchance.org. I have, you know, e-courses and I do a two day training workshop in San Diego for leaders where they can come and learn how to, coach and counsel people really well and give them sort of a new framework and some, some really fresh tools to, uh, to really 
increase their productivity in counseling and coaching and helping people navigate some of their, their problems. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, the website's probably a great starting point if you want to learn more about, you know, the book or, or the training or the curriculum, secondchance.org. Um, and then of course I'm on social media at Mike Foster on Twitter and Mike Foster 2000 on Instagram. That's always a good way to kind of keep up to date with, with what I'm up to. Fantastic, man. Again, Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks, Jared. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Creative Sheep Podcast. Hey, if you will, if you want to get in touch with us, check us out on uh, on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at creative underscore sheep. If you got a question or a comment, hit us up. We'd love to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We will see you on the next episode of the Creative Sheep Podcast. Farewell, my friends. Farewell.